We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And from Taijong by Donovan Smith. And great to be here. And we'll begin this week's show with it being the 77th anniversary of the 228 incident this Wednesday. Now, civic groups took to the streets of Taipei this past weekend to call on the government to step up efforts to ensure transitional justice. With some participants saying the DPP's efforts to achieve said transitional justice have not gone far enough and the central government should now remove the statue of Chiang Kai-shek from the Memorial Hall in Taipei. Now, on 228 Memorial Day itself, President Tsai Ing-wen was busy touting her administration's advances on transitional justice. Speaking at a memorial ceremony in Jai County, Tsai said a series of efforts to implement transitional justice have been made, including admitting wrongdoing, issuing apologies to victims, launching investigations and paying compensation. Tsai also said that her administration has passed or amended five pieces of legislation formed by a special cabinet-level body to promote transitional justice and also published four investigative reports on the 228 incident and the white terror period. And according to Tsai, a foundation established last year to oversee compensation for victims of both the 228 incident and the white terror period has accepted claims from nearly 2,000 applicants so far and paid more than 4 billion NT to victims and their families. Meanwhile, President-elect Lai Ching-de was in Tainan and speaking at a memorial event there, he said his incoming administration will make every effort to safeguard the island's security and democracy to ensure that the events of the 228 incident never happen again in Taiwan. Lai went on to say that his administration will be focusing on three major tasks to address unresolved issues related to the incident. And those three major tasks are, according to Lai, number one, to unify the country and rally people together to safeguard Taiwan to ensure peace, security and democracy. Number two, that his administration will push legislation related to the Act on Promoting Transitional Justice in order to better learn and reflect on the 228 incident. And number three, that his new government will expand programmes to compensate victims of the 228 incident and their families. Now, in Taipei, Mayor Zheng Wen'an issued another public apology to the victims of family members affected by the 228 incident. And speaking at an event at the 228 Memorial Park, Zheng said the mistakes of history must never be repeated. And as mayor of Taipei, he will like to once again express his most sincere apologies for all that occurred during the incident. It's the second year that Zheng has made a public apology for the incident while serving as Taipei mayor due to who his family are. Now, according to Jung, 228 Memorial Events serve as a reminder to commemorate what older generations sacrificed and he says he'll work to ensure that human rights are respected and that democracy is defended. However, protesters once again attempted to disrupt the Taipei 228 Memorial Event as they did last year and brief scuffles between police and protesters broke out as some people attempted to breach a cordoned off area. Now, Jung brushed off the protests and told reporters after the event that, well, it was overall pretty smooth and he went on to say there were protesters but he believes the memorial was respectful to the families of the affected. So, Brian, of course, this is the usual thing. Protests have become normal now in Taipei. Of course, before Zheng Wen and Ma Ying Zhou attended events in Taipei and drew protests, of course. But, I mean, what about other things they said? What about William Lai's three points? And what about Tsai touting her administration's efforts? Yeah, so I think with Tsai leaving office and Lai incoming, it's not terribly surprising that Tsai would tout the accomplishments of her administration on transitional justice. 
At the same time, I don't think it was enough for many civil society groups that have been working on the issue for some time. In the meantime, Tsai was also trying to please members of the public while also not offending independent voters, people that actually may have a mixed view of history that's somewhere in between the pan-green and pan-blue camps. And so one doesn't expect, for example, major moves such as removing the statue from the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial uh, that uh, did not seem to have enough momentum behind it before the dissolution of the Transitional Justice Commission. And it is quite interesting then that in terms of discussing 228 and her own accomplishments regarding clarifying the facts or reparations uh, for 228 and the White Terror, the Transitional Justice Commission did not come up as much because that was itself still a hotbed political issue in the recent election, uh, with the KMT focusing fire on its actions. On transitional justice, there are about I don't know, two dozen countries, uh, rough, roughly, that have ad- addressed the issue and that have gone through similar transitions as Taiwan has. Taiwan actually has been about, uh, tackled the issue about as mildly as possibly any country on the planet. I, 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 you know, it's not really addressed the whole the the issue you can actually go online and you can see from the UN and the international there's an international organization on transitional justice the amount that taiwan is addressed is minimal um and there's a lot of problems that taiwan has just simply won't touch and these include for example um you have uh, things like, uh, you know, uh, who's been punished for having done or committed atrocities in the past? South Africa went through a truth and reconciliation uh, process where if you came forward, admitted all of the things that you had done uh, that could be, could be called criminal uh, during the apartheid era, you, you would be absolved, and you would not you would not serve jail time. But you would have to come forward and document and admit to what you'd done. None of this has happened in Taiwan, as far as I know. The only the only people who served any jail time at all, uh, o- you know, over what happened during the Taiwan's uh, white terror era, were, for example, the murders, uh, the murder, the murder trials that followed. Uh, of the the killing of a, of an American citizen, uh, it was uh, Henry Leal in the United States, and they, of course the United States government was very upset that there was an American citizen killed in the 1980s uh, on American soil, and that included, for example, white the White Wolf. Now. It, it, Domestically, about the only person I can think of who's actually served any, or who had, there was any negative repercussions from that entire period, was actually the DPP lawmaker, Huang Guoshu, who, he, from here in Taichung, who it turned out was an informant, uh, for the, for the government against the Danwai, or the, those who were activate, uh, those who were, campaigning for democracy during the 1980s, and he he was forced into being an informant. He stepped down from his position in the party and uh, did not run for re-election as a result. These are about the only repercussions for anybody anywhere that I'm aware of for that entire period, but tens of thousands of people died. 
people out, their possessions confiscated. There were tens of, if not hundreds of thousands of people were uh, wrongly imprisoned, uh, you know. But there's been no accountability for any of this. So Taiwan's process has been remarkably minor compared to pretty much every country on the planet. And Brian, I mean, why has no one been punished, as Donovan said there? Why do you think? Well, I think in many ways it was the cost for a... <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> My turn to do that. Um, in, in many ways, I think it was the cost for a peaceful transition of power, but at the same time, the KMT was not forced to resolve, uh, dissolve. It still remains active as a political force. And there are many politicians that continue to be active in public life, probably in both parties, that have checkered records going back to the authoritarian period. And it opens a can of worms now to revisit these past crimes. Because I think what has also been the case with the international processes of truth and reconciliation and transitional justice is that if you don't take care of things the first time around, it's very difficult to take care of them after. And then sometimes the democratic freedoms that have been won after are used as a way to prevent dealing with these past crimes, saying that you're now you're targeting political dissidents, that you're no different from the former Turin period, etc. And one sees this in Taiwan with the claims of the KMT to try to defend itself, that the DPP is conducting a green terror, which is uh, worse than the white terror, which is a ridiculous claim when it's not exactly that the Thai administration is executing people. But this has become increasingly mainstreamized as a position or as something vocalized by pan-blue politicians. Uh, and it comes up in, for example, the recent presidential race, when in the debates, the claim is that uh, regulating Chinese media or pursuing transitional justice or the illicit party assets of the KMT retained from uh, property seizures during the, the period when it came to Taiwan and those actions are are infringing on political freedoms. And one looks at the political figures that we have. For example, Jiang Wanan as Taipei mayor, he ran for office on the basis of a claimed family background linked to Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, Ho Yui, the new Taipei mayor and the KMT 2024 presidential candidate, was the police officer responsible for the series of events that led to Nalan Deng's self-immolation, the uh, freedom speech martyr, uh, the journalist. And then Ma Ying-jeou himself was accused of being a spy for the KMT on students in the U.S. when he was in the U.S. studying, as did occur during this period. And so uh, how far does it go then when there are very high-ranking political figures that are still implicated in such accusations? And I think that at this point, it's very hard to address them. And Donovan, do you think the Tsai administration was a bit nervous about opening a big can of worms here? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that much of the current government is still actually a lot of the, uh, the bureaucrats are still in place. A lot, a lot, in the mil- uh, many of the people in the military are still in place. They're holdovers from that period, or their family members are. And so I think that there is still a concern of who will be implicated. So you take a look at, for example, in the 1980s and 1970s, if you wanted to get ahead in Taiwan, you had to bribe government officials, and you had to be, or either or, you had to be in good with them. So, um, Tsai Ing-wen, the president herself, her father managed to make a whole lot of money. He started as a mechanic, and he ended up being a, a real estate speculator. Now, how close was he to the to the government at the time? Now, he must have at least, at the very least, he would have paid bribes, but he also may have done other things. We don't know. So this could actually reach deep into the DPP. There's a lot of people within all the political parties whose 
if they are not personally, their families probably have someone who made some kind of deal or accommodation with the ruling party at the time and the with and the ruling dictatorship to get ahead or survive. So, you know, who could possibly be implicated next? It could be anybody. And that, I think, hits pretty much all the political parties and their families. So I think that there's a big reluctance uh, on the part of pretty much everyone, uh, you know, in any party to really move forward on this because, you know, it, it, it could bring down uh, important government officials uh, from, you know, from all walks of life and the repercussions could be huge. Yeah, I mean, it is, of course, interesting that the DPP tried to recruit Hoyoi to uh, the DPP in the past. And so it could affect both uh, parties, and I think it's really hard to say. The concerns, I think, of the political parties then, particularly the pan-green parties, is that they wouldn't want the process to become one which they cannot control, in which it's not sure whose records will come to light, and it's possible even that the uh, political leaderships of these parties may not know of what some of their members were up to in the past. And there is accommodation, I think, to the status quo at a certain point in time, particularly during the first uh, presidential administration of the DPP in the Chen period. And so I think it's a question, and uh, that also uh, figures into some of the push and pull between civil society groups working on transitional justice and the government. Uh, But I also think that this year in particular, it's not a significant anniversary in the sense of, let's say, the 80th anniversary of 228 would be. And so I expect more political attention down the line regarding that when these proposals, for example, to take action on, let's say, the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial or other monuments, uh, there probably will be more momentum behind that push later on down the line ahead of these significant anniversaries, particularly once William Lai is in office, because this, this anniversary does occur in a transitory period between presidential administrations. But do you think they're ever going to get rid of that statue, Brian? I mean, realistically, mate, are they ever going to get rid of it? Well, it's a question. I mean, I think uh, particularly in the near term, I think it is quite unlikely. Um, I was also quite amazed, actually, uh, about a year ago when Jiang Wanan was asked, what is the best tourist destination in Taipei? And he answered the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial, which I think is a strange optics on two lights. One is that, well, he claims to be descended from the man whose statue is there. Second is regarding the authoritarian history of that. And... uh, he was also lambasted because that is a bad answer as a tourist destination, a very generic answer. But also, I think it shows something. I think it shows something about the kind of depoliticized way in which the Chinese memorial is viewed, that it's not viewed with sensitivity by many members of the public. And so that did re- provoke some response at the time. It mostly just went by. And Donovan, what about the Chiang Kai-shek statue? I mean, Brian can't see it disappearing soon. Do you see it disappearing overnight or possibly it will still be around in a decade? I no. I, I mean, you know, in the run up to the twenty two, uh, the twenty twenty two uh, local elections, there was a lot of talk about there was a you know there was a committee that was deciding what what was going to happen with it, and uh, you know, there was a lot of discussion going on on what should be done with it, and nothing. It, it's it, it's as if the the whole topic has just disappeared. You know, and this has been around for a while. Now, when, you know, the Tsai administration came in in uh, in 2016 with a legislative majority and set up the Transitional Justice Commission in 2018, they did basically, there was a, a huge amount of talk at the time that they were going to do things like get rid of all the Chiang Kai-shek statues. They've gotten rid of about maybe 70% of them, maybe 75 at this point. Um, 
that they were going to, you know, remove uh, Chiang Kai-shek, uh, you know, and Sun Yat-sen from the money, but nope, still there. Um, there was all this talk of all those kinds of things that they were going to do, but they all kind of just devolved into talking about it and then not actually doing much. So yes, many of the Chiang Kai-shek statues are gone, but still about a quarter of them remain. The main one at the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial is still there. Obviously, Chen Chen tried to change the name of the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial, uh, which Maing Zhou reverted, also with the, the, the Zhenghua Post. You know, these kinds of things. So they, these things keep persisting, and the government really isn't moving them. The one thing that the DPP did succeed um, as far as transitional justice was the Ill-Gotten Gains Act, which made sure that all those ill-gotten gains that the KMT had seized or expropriated or stolen uh, during the one-party um the one-party authoritarian rule era that they had seized were actually taken from them and they were removed and, and taken back by the government. But that, of course, had political advantages for the DPP. But the other stuff, they've moved remarkably slowly on. Now, I'm not saying that the reparations to victims was unimportant. They have done that. They put $4 billion into that. Um, uh, for and that does matter. Uh, releasing of documents, which they've moved very slowly on, and still there are a lot of questions out remaining. What happened to Lin Xiong's uh, family who was murdered? There's still a lot of these questions out there. But you know, releasing documents, reparations to families, um, and uh, those who have been committed of crimes wrongfully have been exonerated. These are all good things, but there's so much, uh, and there's so many questions that still remain, and there's been nobody has been punished or even asked to account for what happened at the time, and it's, it's not going to happen as far as I can tell. And Brian, of course, in the run-up to this year's 228 Memorial Day, there was... A notice by a school where it said it, it students were going to have an event. And there was a backlash against, you can't have an event on this day. It's like a, a sacred day, so to speak. But, I mean, is it a sacred day? Because, of course, there was a concert in the evening of 228 this year, which surely is the same as a bunch of school children going around and doing what they want to do. Yeah, well, the event that caused controversy was uh, by cheerleaders, and they framed it as a party, because I think uh, the concern was that young people perhaps don't know the meaning of 228, and it's just the holiday. And that maybe points to certain issues, I think, with the teaching of Taiwan's past in the educational system. Uh, the way young people have committed 228 in the past decade, uh, in the years prior to and particularly after the Sunflower Movement in 2014, was through holding a indie rock concert at night. And so that's usually a gathering of civil society groups, including groups that work on transitional justice, and an attempt to get young people involved, interested in these issues through something they might find fun. And uh, it differs from the commemorations that take place in the morning, which are much more serious and so forth. But then you do have 228 victims, uh, or white terror victims rather, come and talk about their stories and give speeches. And uh, uh, 
it's a chance, I think, for young people to also get to know the uh, side of civil society that is involved in, in such issues and beyond. Um, what's interesting then, though, that I think particularly is seeing some of the commercial advertisements for various deals. I saw one by Mr. Donut advertising, for example, you can buy donuts for 228, uh, 228NT. Uh, and it, the optics of that are a bit strange when we are commemorating a historical massacre, but that is also something that is occurring. And I think the framing of the holiday as Peace Day is, in fact, depoliticizing it, not talking about the history and just framing it as a general will never happen again, but not wanting to discuss the details. And so that is also part of the contention between uh, the commemorations of 228. And, and for example, in the past, when the KMT was in power, there was research being funded through the Taiwan Foundation for Democracy, downplaying the numbers killed or saying they were all communists or uh, that the victims were mostly Weishenmen. And that is still, I think, a matter of contention and still something that is fought over between the political camps in Taiwan. So, I mean, Brian, is, do you think a peace day sounds better than Memorial Day, or should it be called the 228 Memorial Peace Day, maybe? Uh, I think it could be more political. I mean, mentioning that 228 specifically refers to a historical massacre. And I think it's quite remarkable, because there are many in Taiwan descended from those that uh, experienced the political persecution, or were caught up into it, or knew someone who was taken in. But then, because of the decades of silence that followed, then there are people that just don't know, or their parents or grandparents are not willing to talk about it. And Donovan. So, young people today, I mean, should they go to a rock concert, a pop concert, an indie concert, whatever you want to call it, or should they go and watch the memorials that take place during the daytime? Well, I mean, I think it depends on, you know, the thing is, is that the fundamental point of the two, it's called the 228 Peace Memorial Day. Um, And fundamentally, I think that the whole point of the day is to think about what happened uh, on 228 or the events that led up to 228 and the white terror that followed and to think about the lessons that we need to learn about this. I mean, obviously, tens of thousands of people were killed, hundreds of thousands of people imprisoned, people's lives were destroyed. Generations wouldn't even talk about it. Um, So generations of young people grew up not even knowing what had happened to their own family members, Uh, much like, say, for example, Tiananmen. The Tiananmen massacre is covered up in China. You know, young people don't even know about it. So what they do, if you go to, whether they go to a, one of the, the solemn ceremonies at the, you know, one of the 228 memorials in, in, in one of the cities, or they go to an indie concert, the important thing is to stop and give a little bit of thought to the lessons learned from it. You know, whether somebody stands up and gives, you know, a, a, a speech and usually what they do is they bring in people whose family members had been killed on 228 or people who had lived through it. They bring the, the, these victims up and talk about it. Or you go to an indie concert where you have bands that are singing about topics related to the subject. So, for, for example, Thonic has quite a few songs that are directly related to lessons from the martial law era. Um, you know, the idea, fundamentally, how you commemorate it, I think is less important than that you actually are commemorating and remembering what actually happened through 228 and through the white terror period. So, you know, the form that you, you're, 
you, you know, the individual person takes in doing so, I, I, don't, I think it's less important that they are that, that they are reflecting on those issues. And of course, and of course, Brian. I mean, in a few years, there won't be as many people who actually have vivid memories of two to eight because, of course, they're all rather elderly. Mm, absolutely. So it actually it is quite interesting because in terms of, let's say, looking at uh, every year when there's new scholarship on 228 of the White Terror, uh, or just in terms of the commemorations, now they are lumped together because although 228 is commemorated as the start of the White Terror, it is also not the entirety of the White Terror, which stretched for decades. Uh, but particularly because of the fact that there are less 228 survivors around who can tell their stories, uh, there's now the kind of lumping together of the two. And that's something that's increasingly happened with commemorations, uh, even in the past decade, I've noticed, because of the fact that there are less people around. And so maybe that points to the importance of commemorating 228 and the White Terror, because these people will not be around forever. And I think a lot of these issues that are still unresolved may not be resolved in these people's lifetimes. But that raises the question, particularly how young people remember this. What's really interesting to me in the past uh, decade, too, is the fact that many of the early depictions of the White Terror in art, or particularly cinematic history, were originally art films. But now one is seeing popular films, such as Detention, which is a horror film. Uh, I recently watched Untold Her Story, which is a more recent film, but also not exactly a pure art film. And so one is seeing this move into pop culture, which also does reflect something about the perhaps generalization of knowledge about 228, but uh, also it points to differences in how people are remembering it nowadays. And what about in schools, Brian? It's still a matter of contention, because I expect if a KMT government were to take office again, one might see an attempt to dial back the teaching of 228 or the White Terror. And I think that also points into how some members of the older generation refuse to reckon with this period, saying it's just a thing that's introduced into the curriculum by the DPP because they want to push their narrative history, and not exactly believing that this occurred. There's still significant tension about uh, who was killed, who was targeted, how many were killed, was it justified? Uh, and I think a lot of the, the details last a lot. I think, in, in that sense. And it's quite remarkable because we do live in times in which I think many of the, the visible uh, aspects of the White Terror or 228 are still right around us. I mean, for example, I live not too far from where all the political prisoners were executed. And there's just not a lot of local commemoration of that. Moving on now, and the newly amended Political Archives Act came into effect to mark the 77th anniversary of the 228 incident on Wednesday. The government is describing the amended act as an important element in its efforts to restore truth and boost social harmony through the pursuit of transitional justice. It was signed into law by President Tsai Ing-wen in late December of last year. Now, according to the National Archives Administration, the amended act eliminates the requirement that all political files and national security information must remain permanently confidential. The Amendments authorise the government to continue expanding the collection of political files with a particular focus on records and documents related to the 228 incident from August the 15th of 1945 to November the 6th of 1992 and also those from the martial law era. Now political files categorised as containing classified national security information will also be declassified after 40 years but with the exception of those which will pose a serious threat to national security. So Donovan, more documents hopefully will come out about the 228 incident. Well, we hope so. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, up, to, up until this point, so far, what's come out has been really quite disappointing. Um, you know, Lin Yixiong's family murder, those documents, uh, they claim were destroyed. Now, maybe I'm wrong, and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll be pleasantly surprised, and, that, and we'll actually start getting some answers. Because, you know, the murders... And a lot of them were extrajudicial. Uh, uh, 
political enemies of, of the government, they lasted through into the 1980s. And, you know, we, you know, for example, who ordered the attack on Chen Shui-bian's wife? Um, you know, there's just so many unanswered questions out there. And are we going to actually get answers? And my, unfortunately, my rather dark prediction on this is the answer is no. Even though I'd be willing to bet those documents do exist, I just don't think we're going to see them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, one of the things is that there are these major incidents, such as the, the murder of Ling Yishong's family or the death of Dr. Chen Wenchen and his body being found on the National Taiwan University campus. And there's always these declassification of documents that occur, but there are sometimes of an older period, such as 228, uh, in which many of the culprits are, as with the victims, also deceased. And the ones that we have today were quite young then, actually. Uh, but then these very these these significant incidents that take place much more recently, there's still not truth for them, and we should know it's still relatively recent history. Uh, there is a factor of the KMT not being open with its own archives, perhaps, but I don't think that's the major factor here. May it be that uh, carrying this out, this major incident, and holding those individuals who carried out such killings to task would still be politically sensitive and become a political lightning rod. And it becomes actually, I think, yoked with the the cross strait issue or the need of the DPP to even appear very moderate at present and not as Chen Shepian and changing all these names or moving all these statues. Uh, taking action on this issue has now become caught up in that. It's very unfortunate. It, and it actually limits the actions I think the DPP can take, even regarding killings are in recent memory. And Li Yixiong is still alive, and perhaps hopefully he can see justice for his family one day uh, while he is still alive. But time is running out. And moving away from the 228 incident now, and the head of the National Association of Industry and Commerce on Tuesday told reporters on the sidelines of a Lunar New Year event hosted by several of the island's major industry and commerce groups that his group's members fully understand the need to raise electricity rates. Now, according to Thomas Wu, the association believes increases in electricity rates are a necessary response to a global situation and the rising cost of raw materials. But he said the government needs to draft supporting measures to mitigate the impact of those rate hikes. Now, those comments came as the Ministry of Economic Affairs' Electricity Price Review Committee is set to meet later this month to discuss possible adjustments to electricity rates. Now, Thai Power reported accumulated losses for 2022 and 2023 of 382.5 billion NT, and there have long been calls to hike the rates, but successive governments have been afraid to do so. Now, Thai Power on Thursday of this week announced that it will be recommending that residential electricity rates are not just big industrial users will be raised for the first time in 20 years when the Electricity Price Review Committee meets. And Economics Minister Wang Meihua has said that any adjustments will take Taiwan's competitiveness into account also. And that statement was in response to a Bloomberg report that said that if Taiwan's industrial electricity prices are raised to the level of South Korea, the country could lose its edge. So, Brian, regular Joe Blow will have to pay bigger rates for the first time in 20 years, which, of course... Many people have been saying, why is Thai power not doing well? Could we simply not pay more electricity? Yeah, so it is a debated issue. And I think that particularly there's reluctance to raise the rates ahead of elections because you might be punished for that. And so that is why perhaps this is taking place at this juncture as we are between presidential administrations in this transitory period. Uh, it is a question how this will come up in future elections. I think particularly political parties will lean to their traditional narratives. KMT saying that these happen because there's not this reliance on nuclear energy and we should have more nuclear energy uh, and, and that sort of narrative. And of course, there is a concern about keeping industry in Taiwan uh, 
because of the fear that it will go elsewhere, because that maybe will reduce the reliance of the world on Taiwan for manufacturing of key products such as semiconductors. And if that goes elsewhere, then Taiwan will perhaps suffer. And so that plays into this debate as well. And so I think particularly regarding residential rates or industrial users, uh, it's always a sensitive political issue. And I think particularly the the uh, Thai power itself is not always seen as the most transparent regarding its decision making. Uh, and so I think that the blame often reverts to the presidential administration. But I think there'll be a backlog. Twenty years, people haven't seen a big electricity rate hike for you losing. I think it's using less than three hundred and thirty kilowatt hours. Yeah. But if there is one, what are people going to say, Brian? Uh, I think then perhaps it will be framed particularly by the the KMT and Pam Blue Camp as the specific fault of the Tsai administration that this happened for the first time in twenty years. It didn't happen when we were in power, and that is, I think, the narrative that is actually often seen in terms of Taiwan's energy, calling for a return to nuclear energy as the main energy source in Taiwan. Because during a period of high economic prosperity, Taiwan's energy mix was very reliant on it. Uh, and that, I think, will figure into this uh, criticism, for example, that one saw the KMT narr- uh, narrative in the last election leaning into shortages under the Tsai administration or power outages or mismanagement, suggesting that there has been this failure to manage some society and its needs, whether in terms of energy or supplies or food, etc. So, Donovan, I mean, will you mind paying more for your electricity bill? Well, of course, I don't want to. Uh, you know, I don't think anybody wants to uh, see more of their income go go away. But fundamentally, uh, uh, you know, after twenty years of inflation, that they haven't raised the rates, it, it, that is kind of ridiculous. I mean, at some point, they're going to have to, and they're losing hundreds of millions of NT per year, which is a staggering amount. And they need to transition to new energy sources. And, you know, you're not going to be able to afford that without some kind of rate increase. So, you know, that they're raising the rates is completely reasonable. It's necessary, you know. And, yeah, is it going to hurt people's pocketbooks? Sure, it is. And I don't think anybody's going to jump up and down and go, yay, Thai power is raising their rates. But, you know, it has to happen and to reflect what's been going on over the last 20 years. And that they haven't raised the rates in the last 20 years is actually kind of shameful because, you know, to, you know, to reflect rising costs, you should raise rates and get people used to the occasional adjustment. And, you know, they haven't done so for so long that now, you know, people are going to be a little bit more shocked. So, you know, instead of getting people used to small increases over time, you know, they've kind of just dropped the ball and ignored the whole issue. And now they, you know, people are, are, are going to have to face up to it. So the big question is, how much are they going to raise the rates? Are they going to raise the rates to a point where they can actually make up for the shortfall? And, you know, that's yet to be seen, but that could, if they actually do raise the rates to the point where it reflects changes from the last 20 years and actually covers the shortfall and the accumulated shortfall uh, from, you know, uh, the last few years, it could be a substantial uh, raise, or they're just going to try and, you know, incrementally raise it, and as far as the problem is concerned, kick the can down the road. Of course, Donovan, the question here is, 
eight years ago when the Thai administration took office, it jumped up and down and went green energy, wind power, wonderful. But of course, Thai power was in, well, was in a mess then. So did mm-hmm. they, why didn't they think, oh, we need to raise electricity rates to give Thai power more money to actually help and do things with the green power energy we plan to bring in? <laughs> Good question. Um, I think, you know, ultimately you're going to have to, uh, you know, get uh, Tsai Ing-wen and her administration to answer for that because they really needed the money to to make big investments. Now, they did get private investment in, for example, offshore wind, and a lot of these companies came in, and the feed-in tariffs, or the amount of money that Thai Power was willing to pay uh, for the power that they produced, initially was quite high, probably far more than Thai Power could actually afford. But, you know, and so they probably promised more than they could actually pay for, but... You know, of course, they're guaranteed. They're state-owned, state-owned corporation, so of course they're backed by the government. So no one's worried. At the end of the day, they're going to pay their bills. But they started dropping the feed-in tariffs because, of course, Thai power was underfunded. And so what happened is the investment that was going into offshore wind started to weaken. And the regulations in Taiwan are quite ridiculous when it comes to operating offshore wind. Uh, you know, I mean, just things like how boats go in and out of a port are to, to service the, you know, the offshore turbines are uh, extraordinarily complicated. And then you had the pandemic. And so there's been so many problems with this, even though there's massive potential here. Fundamentally, it's been Taiwan has a regulatory environment that's not been very good, and the feed-in tariffs have been dropping. About the only thing that's sustaining it is you have companies like uh, TSMC, which has told their you know the companies that they supply that they will try to transition to a hundred percent renewable energy. The only way they can do this is uh, fund these offshore wind farmers, uh, you know, wind farms. And then, you know, so what they're doing is they're now paying more than Thai power is for the power from the offshore, the, uh, offshore, uh, the offshore wind farms so that they can then turn around and say to their, to their customers, we are operating, uh, your, your chips are 100% or high percentage of renewable energy. So basically right now it's these companies that are stepping up and in place of Thai power to make sure that the offshore wind turbines, wind farms are profitable. But you know, there's still not enough. Thai power is kind of missing in action here. The regulatory environment doesn't work very well. Uh, and they're deeply underfunded, and of course they have all these industrial accidents. And of course you're going to have industrial accidents uh, where you have rolling blackouts when you're underfunded and your people are overworked. So, you know, they have to raise the rates, and, you know, the question is, will they raise the rates to make sure that Thai power is actually more functional 
and is doing its job and can actually achieve the goals that the government has set out for it or not. And we haven't seen, we, we don't know yet. So, Brian, Thai power basically needs to get his act together. Yeah, well, fiddling around with things. That's always been, a, I think, criticism of Thai power for some time because it is not seen as, again, lacking transparency or, inefic- or efficiency. And then you do have these frequent accidents, uh, unclear decision-making to the public, uh, and I think they're quite criticisms of it in that sense. And so I think that also points to broader issues regarding the way energy industry works in Taiwan. Maybe it also says something about the government, Brian. Because, yeah, of course, well, I mean, we, say, we say Thai power, but, of course, Thai power is owned by one entity. Yeah, that's and right. That's though, it's the, also its own uh, interest, vested interest group in that sense. But it's not owned by the people, because it gets told what to do by a certain bunch of people that live yeah, in the building. which often change. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where we have to leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And from Tai Jong by Donovan Smith. Great to be here. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.